This is an RNZ podcast. Well, overseas, major media companies took a beating in 2022. In the US, they were caught in the crossfire of a culture war targeted politically by Trumpists in election year and attacked by COVID sceptics fed on fake news. And the economic crisis there hit them hard as well. And watching it all unfold from San Francisco was Kiwi journalist and entrepreneur Hamish McKenzie. He founded a publishing platform called Substack, which boomed in 2020, giving journalists out of a job an important audience and income. But as Hayden Dinesh now reports that success created some editorial conundrums to confront as well in 2020. As New Zealand entered its fourth week of lockdown, Substack founder Hamish McKenzie penned a blog titled How I'd Rebuild Print Media. He had just watched The Listener, a magazine he used to freelance for, get shut down along with the rest of the Bauer Media stable. At the time, McKenzie's online startup was still a niche player in the US media market. But he argued Substack, which helps journalists set up newsletters for paying subscribers, was a vision of the future. The ad model, he argued, was dying. If media organisations didn't want to go the way of the listener, they'd have to create a product good enough and unique enough to win subscriptions. In the months since, Hamish McKenzie has gathered a lot of real-life evidence for that argument. Substack has flourished even as many media organisations have shed staff and struggled financially. It's become the fallback career option for high-profile reporters, including Pulitzer Prize winner Glenn Greenwald and NY Mag columnist Andrew Sullivan, both of whom left their jobs after falling out with colleagues. Respected authors like culture writer Anne Helen Peterson and specialist journalists like The Verge's former tech writer Casey Newton have signed up with the platform. But that success comes with some thorny questions about what kind of writers and content Substack should host. The service's higher profile has also attracted scepticism from some mainstream media critics like Wired's Stephen Levy, who question whether the Substack model could ever truly supplant mainstream media. Then there's the ad model Hamish McKenzie thought was on its last legs. Stuff which is primarily ad-funded paid out a $1,000 Christmas bonus to all its staff this year, with new owner Sinead Boucher saying it was a reward for the company's success since she bought it for $1 in May. And the New Zealand listener is now back under new owners, looking pretty much the same as it did before. Given all that, does Hamish McKenzie have the same take on the future of the media? And does he still see his company as having a defining role in that future? He spoke to me earlier this week. Kia ora, Hamish, and welcome to Media Watch. Thanks very much for having me again. So when we talked around April, Substack was still a reasonably plucky startup. You had a few names on there, but you weren't huge. It's kind of exploded in the intervening months. Can you put some figures and some facts around that growth? Yeah, I think we're still nascent. We're not a mammoth, but it's grown nicely. I think around about the time we spoke last time, we were at about 100,000 paying subscribers across the network, and now we're uh, very comfortably over a quarter million. Mm. Um, Top 10 publishers on Substack collectively are making more than $10 million a year. I think that that pretty much gets into it. In the the first three months of that pandemic, uh, since the pandemic started, so March, April, May, we we grew 60% in that time in revenue. So COVID was an accelerant of the trends that were already favouring Substack. Right, that's so interesting because obviously other media really suffered in that time and a lot of them were, you know, taking the wage subsidy in New Zealand, going out of business. You say that you were actually gaining revenue and taking more of people's money. Yeah, I think that's one of the benefits of not being reliant on advertising at all. 
and also a couple of side benefits, one being that people suddenly had a lot more time to read and write and take on new projects. And because in the U.S. in particular, the negative effects on the overall media business meant that journalists and good ones were suddenly more interested than they ever were before in new ways to make money and new ways to support their own work. I think that has made uh, the decision for some people to jump over to Substack uh, easier. And also, it's kind of beyond doubt that for certain people, and we think it can be a really wide group, this model works really well and they can not just get by and support their own work, but in some cases they can be really financially successful. And so we've, we've got enough examples now that a lot of the, the good people, the big people, are more easily convinced than they were in the past. But you have to have a really, um, you have to have a specialised skill, right? That's what really helps the Substack. You know, you don't have these generalists, like you wouldn't have a stuff on Substack. You have people that are into particular things. Yeah, I think it's a real advantage to be owning a niche better than anyone else in the world. But the niche can be quite big itself. So, for instance, the number three publication on um, Substack in terms of revenue is The Bulwark. And they did have a big generalist website, but just covering center-right politics, essentially. And they decided to add Substack as um, like a premium package. You could subscribe to The Bulwark Plus. And that model is actually working really well for them. And I think that kind of model might actually work for the likes of, uh, of stuff. But there's, um, there's a lot yet to be seen. It's interesting. Is there a point <laughs> where you might do that classic thing that tech entrepreneurs do and reinvent something that already exists? For instance, are you going to end up with stuff like packages, package deals, where you can subscribe to a bunch of different writers with a bunch of different viewpoints and get them all together? And is that similar to just a media organisation? It certainly bears some similarities but to some like by any definition by some definition you can be uninventing and reinventing things over and over again and that's the history of business and the history of media so yeah um we are really interested in bundling and i think bundling would make sense but it wouldn't be substack controls the bundle and tells you which bundle of writers to subscribe to it would be writers deciding among themselves who to uh, ally with and create their own bundles and I think um, while that might bear some similarities with the, the media institutions that we've known up until now, it's going to exist in a different context where subscriptions is the main business model, not advertising, and email is going to be an important part of the delivery system. Yeah, right. So, the, I mean, the, the thing that you say is your big point of difference is that you're absolutely not relying on advertising revenue, which you see. You do still see it as a dying source of revenue for the media? Yeah, I kind of think it's like it will be understood as part of the old world, of the old way that media was supported, and there's a more exciting new world to go and explore based around direct payments, and that's the one that Substack is just happened to crack open. Is there a limit on how much you can do with direct payments? Just by the very nature of the subscription fee, for instance, it's about you know seven US dollars a month to subscribe to a lot of these substacks, and surely there's just a built-in limit on how many of them people are willing to pay. Yeah, I think there is a built-in limit, but I my bet is that that limit is going to be a lot higher than we uh, ever imagined it might be. We already see a bunch of people who subscribe to multiple substacks and sort of complaining in public about having to spend so much money on all these writers they love, which we think is a really good problem to encourage. Can they support, Can this model support large institutions? Yeah, I think so. And I think that it's possible that this might just look a little bit different. The, the media empires of the future might be uh, more about shared resources among more disparately distributed uh, reporters and writers. 
And in some cases, though, I think larger institutions, larger organizations could just be built directly on Substack as a group publication, like uh, The Dispatch, which is the number one revenue earner on Substack at the moment. They raised money and built a newsroom. In New Zealand, it's not necessarily been the case. You've actually had reasonable success stories this year, especially with stuff under local ownership. Yeah. Is your thesis getting a little bit more shaky? Is the advertising model making a comeback in some ways? Well, I don't, I don't see particularly strong evidence of that, except maybe some of the um, some of the advertising business that existed before COVID might be recovering. I don't think it's a game that publishers can really win when Google and Facebook utterly dominate it. And even companies like Stuff will have to continue to think of diverse ways to make money other than just advertising. Is there an extent to which we've heard this all before? Because I remember the days when we were all saying, blogs are going to take down the traditional media. Yeah, no one's here to take down the traditional media, but I understand what I understand the message. Like the great, the great white hope at once upon a time was blogs, and I was coming up in the era when blogs had their heyday, and that was a really exciting time and a better time than the Twitter-dominated time, if you ask me. But mm. yeah, one thing that was missing there was that the ceiling for those top bloggers was go get hired by a, a large existing organization that puts you on the payroll. Now the ceiling is much higher. The, the potential is much greater because you have the option to monetize directly through paid subscriptions. And you don't need that many subscribers to make it financially really interesting. And so someone like Matt Iglesias or Glenn Greenwald or Andrew Sullivan, all of whom are now on Substack, may not have been able to make that much money uh, back in the day. Uh, but now they can make a lot of money by being independent. Now, you mentioned some of those names. Some of them are actually pretty controversial, I think, particularly Andrew Sullivan. Do you have to start wrestling with some of the same editorial decisions that other tech platform owners and operators have confronted, chiefly among it? Where do you draw the line in terms of what content you host? These questions are inevitably going to come up. It's one of the kind of big questions of our time for speech on the internet, and uh, Substack will definitely face them. We're, we've been lucky so far in, th in that the uh, the water hasn't got too hot, but we expect it to get hotter. We have content guidelines that we people have to comply with. We take a really permissive approach to you know what is allowed on Substack. We don't try to curate a particular ideological point of view. We're against that. We we believe in a broad uh, array of views, and that's important to democracy. But when it crosses the line into things like harmful activity or incitements to violence or hate speech, that's when the content guidelines come into play. There's grey areas there, though, isn't there? Because you have, for instance, what would you do if Stefan Molyneux, famously kind of white nationalist or white nationalist adjacent views, if he tried to start a substack? We'd have to see what their publication looked like. But there is a key difference to the way that substack operates here, is that we're not in the business of creating news feeds that seek to draw attention to the content that provokes strong feelings, as many of the Facebook or Twitter-type uh, algorithms do today. These things uh, exist on, on their own as islands, and readers can make their own decisions about whether or not they read them or subscribe to them, and Substack isn't there forcing it down people's throats. Yeah, so essentially you're making the same argument that someone like Mark Zuckerberg might make, which is that you are a platform, not a publisher. But you say that you have a stronger claim to that because you're not actually forcing content on people like he does. Yeah, I think it's difficult for Facebook to, to fully make that claim because uh, they are serving essentially as a replacement for the newspaper. They are deciding to a large extent what you see and what you read, what goes into your mind. 
And Substack is not doing that. We don't want to have that power of the platform. We want to give that power back to the people, to the readers and to the writers, so they're in control. Now, you say that, but you're not completely out of the promotion game. You know, you can go to Substack and you can look at the top 10, you can search for things, you know, you are putting stuff in front of people. Is there a consideration there where you actually don't want to put more junk into the world? We are just about to change those leaderboards, actually, because there's just one global list across all of Substack. It doesn't really make sense anymore. So we're breaking it down into categories, and we are going to have a featured section where we will do something like Apple does with the App Store, which is featured new and noteworthy kind of publications. And we will do that not so we can um, hide bad content, but so we can shine a light on quality work that's been done that might not otherwise feature in those leaderboards in these pilot programs right now and figuring out how to make it work at scale. Now, a lot of your recent success on Substack has been because you've become a home for writers, like you mentioned, Matt Iglesias and Glenn Greenwald, Andrew Sullivan. These are all people that have clashed with what they perceive as their woke editors or their woke readers of their publications. Are you wary that maybe you'll kind of become seen as a bastion for the so-called non-woke or controversial writers? Some people do try to make that claim. These are like some, these are some of the, the high-profile names that have come across in, in recent times, and people get quite exercised about that. But we really do have a, a strong diversity of writers. There's people on, on the far left and on the, on the, on the right and everywhere in between and not writing about politics. You know, by the same token, we've got Anne Helen Peterson and Zainab Tufechi, Hunter Harris, Amina So. They all recently joined and uh, didn't create quite, quite the storm that those others did. I think one of the problems is that today we've got this leaderboard, which we created for like the early days of Substack, that shows off the top writers. And that favors some writers who have large existing audiences or write about particular subjects that are conducive to revenue generation like politics or business. And that's one of the reasons, as I mentioned before, we're moving away to this this other sort of categorization system that does a better job of showcasing the, the diversity of work being done across Substack. But you you must have political views, right? How do no. you <laughs> no no? How do you justify? Uh, I guess this complete agnostic the political agnosticism. Uh, some might even call it amorality of the platform. Well, to yourself, pl- I mean. Well, my views are generally liberal. I actually do believe in that it's important to have a, and consider a broad array of viewpoints and to let people say them and for those viewpoints to be hashed out in sunlight rather than to have some suppressed and some promoted. I believe in the intelligence of uh, people and the ability to figure that out, especially if they're given a good, calm, a reasonable environment in which to consider those things and they're not kind of mindlessly refreshing their Twitter feed in search of a dopamine hit. In that, in that way, uh, when we're addicted to our social media feeds and reading there, in that way we're in weak mental states. But Substack, part of the reason that Substack exists is that we want to give people the tools to take back their mind, to put them in a position where they can make these decisions and about what to read and how to read it in a strong state of mind. And so if you can be in a strong state of mind, then I think you're, you're able to withstand speech that is bad even. If I'd told you at the beginning of 2020 when we last spoke where Substack is now, would you have been surprised? Yeah, definitely. It's it's happened much faster and more uh, emphatically than I would have imagined. Given that fact, what do you see happening next year for you guys? 
I think there's a lot of exciting stuff to come with Substack. We're starting to um, to build out tools that will more powerfully demonstrate the power of being a writer on Substack and and what a good experience it is to be a reader on Substack. Very so, vague. <laughs> Very vague. Can you give me something concrete? We'll grow. I think we're at more than, you know, the public number is more than 250,000 paying subscribers now. I think we'll start to approach a million subscribers in a, in a, year, in a year's time. Hmm. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much for having me. That was Hamish McKenzie, the US-based Kiwi founder of the online platform for journalists, Substack, which grew fast in 2020 as mainstream media outlets struggled with the economic effects of COVID-19. And there he was talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell.